0: Bovo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Andrew Grill to our podcast today. He is an experienced corporate leader and a former IBM global managing partner. He has launched and run technology companies in Europe and Australia and worked with and for some of the world's leading companies, including Telstra, Vodafone, Nestle, BBC, American Express, and Unilever. He is also a seasoned TEDx speaker, having presented at four separate TEDx events. He speaks to and consults for organizations worldwide to develop their strategy around digital disruption, social selling, the workplace of the future, emerging technologies, and digital diversity. Andrew believes that to get digital, you need to be digital. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew.
1: Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, I'm glad you repeated my mantra there to get digital, need to be digital. It's just so important. And when I say that, people shake their head uh, in in a positive way going, yeah, we believe you.
0: Well, hopefully we as humans don't become digital, but I get the point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't need Star Wars happening, right? Or, you know, where, or uh, uh, Star Trek, where well, we all of a sudden we digitally sort of show up, but I get the point. Yeah. So uh, we're going to get this started with something that uh, I like to call bullish and bearish. It's an opportunity just to get to know the guests and, and have a little fun at the beginning. beginning nothing, too, uh, nothing too serious, but hopefully uh, we'll get you to lock down on either bullish or bearish. Bullish is if you're really for something and uh, bearish is if you are not. Are you ready?
1: Okay. I'm ready. Keep right. me.
0: People would put away their cell phones for a full month in exchange for their rent being paid for a year?
1: Mm. I think people would like to think that. I think though that the dopamine and the oxytocin that social networks give us actually have, have rewired us. And so I don't think humans are capable of doing that anymore. Having said that though, I did a blog post the other day saying, if your phone beeps now, you have no idea who it is. But 10 years ago, it meant you had a text message. And you could go, hmm, I'll answer that now. But I think we are so wired to be connected and, the, and, and these, um, these drugs that are being induced, the, like I say, the dopamine and the, and the oxytocin, make us lean towards that. So I think we're now, it's too far, we're too far gone. So I think um, I'll go bare, I'll go against that. I think people would probably look at a month's worth of rent versus being disconnected from their community for a month would be a price too far. I'm I'm sad that I'm saying that, but I think that's probably reality because of the uh, the way we're wired these days. Right. We are becoming too digital. Fair
0: enough. I'm not sure if I could put it away for a month to have my rent paid for a year, but I might. You never know. Just I, I'd have to go like on this massive detox for a month somewhere else. <laughs> then I just missed everything at the same time. Yeah. All right. All right. The next one. Uh, we will have more conversations with bots and AI than we will our spouses. By 2020,
1: we're there already. I'm, I'm the bull on that one. Um, when Google announced their Google Duplex about two months ago, I was blown away, and I show that video at all of my talks now. And I, this is where you've got two sides of the screen. On one side, you've got the human uh, listening to the bot, and the other side is is the Google AI bot. It's it's a, one of the examples is a hairdresser, and the bot rings up asking for an appointment. I think we're doing it already without realizing, and I think a lot of um, interactions we have are bot uh, managed, uh, and I think we probably are having more conversations. It, it solves the last mile problem. My hairdresser doesn't have an API at the moment, so if I want to book a haircut, I have to ring up on the phone, and that takes probably five or 10 minutes out of my day, and if the phone's busy, I've got to call back. That's, that's annoying when all I want to do is, is essentially get a slot that they've got free, so I think um, we are already having more bot automated conversations than we are with our significant others um, because it makes life easier. I don't have to explain it to a human. I, I have been someone who hates voicemail because I've had to ring up voicemail, listen to the message, write down what they've said and then make a make an action on that, whereas if you have it in a digital format, you can click on it and do something right away. So I, I think we're there already and it'll only get... Um, Worse is the wrong word. I think it'll only get more efficient when we are offloading some of these things to to bots. We may get into it later in the podcast, but I think we are five years away from robots reading ads instead of us.
0: Oh, that would be great. All right. The last one. Uh, Digital impressions will become more influential than human to human personal impressions.
1: I think we're at a tipping point, and again, we may talk about this because of my background in influence. So I think five, ten years ago, if someone had 100,000 Twitter followers, we thought they were amazing. Wow, these people must like you, and that's social proof. We now know, and and the, the average person on the street knows that those numbers can be faked and can be bought. And so when we talk about impressions... Uh, and this social proof, I think we're at a tipping point where now when Unilever comes, Keith Weed comes out from Unilever and says we're not, not going to pay people who, uh, who buy their followers, I think we're going to see a backlash. And I think we're going to actually see when Gen Z comes to town, my daughter who's 12 is Gen Z, I think she's going to want to enjoy playing in the garden, getting her hands dirty with dirt rather than sitting behind a screen. I think we are now at a tipping point where humans are going to claw back and say, I actually like talking to other human beings.
0: Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I think that it uh, it lends itself to sort of where I wanted to start with you just because of uh, both of our backgrounds around kind of on the sales side of things. Uh, the social selling uh, from a digital perspective has a lot to do with the impression, if you will. And social selling has in some cases gotten a bad rap. It could be because of the, are they really influential? But uh, a, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, we always joke that like, if you're just not a good seller offline, you're going to be really horrible online because the bad habits yeah, you have yeah. offline amplify themselves to so many more than the one person you sent that terrible email to or left a terrible voicemail to. So how, how do you think this will shape up in, in the social selling side and and how consumers will be willing or not willing to embrace that from a digital perspective?
1: Yeah, so social selling, I think there are so many ways you can attack this. And you're dead right. If you are a bad salesperson, being a social seller doesn't immediately make you any better. And what's really challenging is if you have someone who culturally isn't used to dealing with a digital world and can't do research digitally and they haven't been used to that, uh, they will really struggle. It's not just about giving someone a LinkedIn premium and saying you're now a social seller. In my time at IBM, I was responsible for $100 million of incremental revenue. Now, that wasn't me directly selling. That was me influencing. And I have a number of examples where had I not done something, had I not been on stage, had I not written a blog post, had I not been at a networking event, we would never have been on the short list or never been on the RFP list. And so I actually can contract where a bunch of deals happened only because I was involved. And you'd probably call that social selling. The challenge is that organisations like IBM um, aren't able to catch up with this new way of selling right away. And and those that $100 never reached my scorecard. Uh, that's a whole other discussion. But I think there are new ways of selling. And even digitally, You know, when I talk to, to a range of people, I might talk to a bunch of CEOs or a bunch of school kids or university students. I say, look... I've been doing business development for a long time, probably 30 years. I did the old way. I went to meetings. I went to coffee catch-ups. I went to networking events, and I pressed the flesh, and I explained to people what I did and how I could help them. Now, with the digital world, it is so much easier to do your background research, and those people that don't, I think, are doing themselves a disservice. The fact that I can go onto LinkedIn, get a a snapshot of who you're about, where you worked, what you're interested in before the sales call – And at the same time, you can see that I've been looking at your profile. I've given you an electronic tap on the shoulder. And for me, if I see someone has looked at my LinkedIn profile, followed me on Twitter, and then I get an outreach, I'm more likely to be open to that contact because it tells me they've done their research and they're investing time in finding out my digital persona. I talk a lot about your digital first impression. And in the the past... If you were turning up to a meeting, there was very little way that you'd know who the person was. I cheekily, when I when I speak to the board of C-suites, I say, uh, look, before we start the meeting, I'm Australian, so I want to I be a bit cheeky. What's the first thing you did when you saw my name on the right. meeting invitation? They said, well, we put your name into Google or LinkedIn. And I said, thank you. You already have a digital first impression of me before we have met. And in some cases, that digital first impression may mean that you look disfavorably on the person because they don't really know what they're talking about. So I think it's social selling goes beyond the actual sale. It's the whole persona, the personal brand. If you Google me, what I want you to see is what's there. And it's taken me 15 years of developing great content because there are 16 other Andrew Grills out there who have a right to come up first in the search. And hopefully if someone's listening to this podcast and in front of Google and you type Andrew Grill into the Google search engine. I own the front page because that's what I want you to see.
0: Yeah. And I I would agree. I mean, I think I get asked often, uh, you know, how to sort of build a brand, especially on the social selling side and, and, I like you worked for a, a major brand. Obviously, in this case, we're talking about you being at IBM, and you've had a slew of others. But let's just stick on IBM for a second. It's two hundred fifty thousand people at IBM. Right? I mean, it's a big brand. It's one of the best known brands in the world. And I worked for a company called Gartner, which is sort of how we've we met in the past. And and I would say that people used to always say, "How do you, from a social digital perspective?" Increase your brand awareness while you're still attached to such a large brand, right? Because there's this fine line between the company brand, your personal brand, and, you know, and I put personal brand in quotes, right? Because as humans, we're not really a brand, but I think you get the point. Like, how do you meld those two things? And if you say, look, I've worked 15 years to do that, that's obviously spanning across your time at, you know, the places you worked alongside your own, uh, you know, awareness, if you will, in the market. And how did you balance those things?
1: That's a really good point, and I've had the luxury of working for large brands like IBM and Telstra and also small brands like Credit and um, Visible Technologies. So there's a fine line, and when I was growing my, my personal brand, I've obviously done it over a number of years, and I've used various techniques. So in a smaller company, there are a couple of individual companies, I'm not going to name them, where there was a difficult discussion between me and the founders because they said We can see that you're growing our brand literally from nothing up to something where you're getting on the stage and you're getting promoted and we're winning deals and we're winning million-dollar deals. But you're also increasing your own brand. Are you you out there for us or for for yourself? And I said, well, for both, and both are benefiting. Now, when you're at an IBM or a Telstra, I can never be anywhere near as big as that brand. But here's an interesting thing. When I joined IBM back in 2013, it was a nine-month process to get me in. I went in as an executive, as as a partner, and I said, look, in the final meeting, I said, look, I do a lot of public speaking i enjoy it i'm being paid for it i want to keep doing it are you okay with that and they said of course we're buying part of what we're buying is we're buying part of your brand because you come with an awareness and people will have a view if you're joining a company like ibm as to what that means for us in the industry and so when i was at ibm in fact i worked harder internally with my brand what i was told before i joined ibm i had a couple of people that took me aside and said look I've been here we've been here a long time one thing you need to know is building your internal brand in a large organization is so important And i was very fortunate three weeks into the job i was asked to speak in front of 700 of my peers at a big event an internal event so in that one moment 700 ibmers knew who i was knew what i did and knew how i could help them and i i've got to tell you three years later on in the corridor someone would say oh andrew i saw you at the excel meeting back in 2013 i want you to help me with this but back to the, the issue of the, the brand, um, one against the other, I think both benefit. So, IBM, I think, were delighted to have me out there. Um, literally, we went from a position of IBM having to pay to get me to a conference to the organiser saying, no, we want Andrew Grill there. And the fact that an IBM is great. And by the way, we don't want an IBM pitch. We want some thought leadership. So I think of someone who understands the value of their personal brand won't want to milk it excessively either way. And whether you're in a small company or a large company, I think the two can work together. The challenge though is that we then go beyond social selling and another thing i like talking about is eminence now at ibm when i was there there were probably 50 people like me that were active on the speaking circuit were active bloggers and were in the media so much so we had media handlers so those 50 people probably the top one percent less than one percent of the organization already have a massive amount of um, of impact when if you harness that and if you put some money behind that, a um, bit of you know advertising money behind that, a bit of structured social behind that, you could turn that into a huge, huge multiplier. So I think companies that understand that they have these, you know, I, I was a bit of a rogue. I wasn't the typical IBM person. I come from 12 years of startups, had my own brand coming into the organization. How do you harness that so that they feel like they're growing inside the company? But also while you're there, this is another point I talk about any company you're at, the time you're there, they are renting your brand. They don't own you. They are renting your brand for the time that you're there. And often I would say, be asked, you know, Andrew, if this person increases their brand, won't they get poached? Absolutely. But while they're there, utilize the fact that you're renting their very well-known brand.
0: And I think that that's really important, especially as uh, social becomes just digital, right? So, you know, one of the quotes that we talked about when this podcast first started, was to get digitally. Need to be digital, right? And and part yeah. of this is, what is your personal uh, interaction? You know, human to human, sort of flesh to flesh, as you said. Either if you're a seller or a marketer, or you're an executive, or, you know, or you're in product development. It doesn't matter. Customer service, like just the human side of it, and then the yeah. digital side of it. Now, I think as consumers, we have this much higher expectation personally. For the way in which brands engage with us, that we then, I like to say, you know, when we walk into work in the morning, we don't leave our personal cape behind and put on a business cape and have a completely different set of expectations. It's actually almost the opposite, where the expectation when you're at work is higher than your expectation when you're in your home or in your car because you feel like work should be able to afford, you know, better things, if you will. And so if you think about that kind of workplace of the future and what it's going to look like. For people who show up to work and their expectations digitally, what are you talking about now as it relates to that kind of future of work, and how we will become much more digitally connected, you know, during sort of nine to five or whatever yeah. your work hours are?
1: A couple of themes that first of all, in terms of you know outside of work and then coming into work, you look at the millennials today, they live and breathe and share things online. And so if they come to work and are told they can't do that, they will look elsewhere. And in my my time at IBM, I would see if the tools weren't there that they needed, they'd find their own. So not surprisingly, there were a bunch of WhatsApp groups that had sprung up where the organisation had no idea what was being said about them because they found that was the quickest way to get work done. Now, if you look at a risk Uh, assessment behind that. I'm sure the risk people were terrified that all this traffic was happening around confidential things on a WhatsApp group, but they did that because they needed to get around and circumvent things that weren't working. So what you have to do is allow people's digital self to flourish at work, so give them the same tools, give them an internal collaboration network, share everything. Netflix famously um, opens the information to everyone. Their leave policy is take leave. I mean, it's that's a smart way of thinking. But when we move to the future of work and the place of work, I think a couple of things will happen. First of all, I don't think the, the notion of us going to an office nine to five, Monday to Friday, is going to be the same for everyone. I'm now an independent contractor, so I'll have various different clients throughout the week and throughout the month. And I think you may even have people that have been in a bank or an insurance job for years who've said, you know what, I don't want to work five days a week for Bank X. I'd like to sell them three days of my time here, and I want to go and work for someone else for two days a week. Now, that's going to be quite um, uh disruptive only because if you've bought someone a desk for five days then they need it for three, what do you do for the other two days? So how do you move the, the physical environment around? How do you cope with having them have information for you know three fifths of a week and those sorts of things? I think what we're going to find is the gig economy that we think at the moment being Task Rabbit or Uber Eats and those delivery drivers that are you know going around doing things in a short term basis. I think, and I'm seeing it firsthand even in my own industry, you've got um, former IBMers, former Gartner people that are saying, hey, I want to rent my time out to a job or an organisation that I really want to work with and I don't want to be there five days a week or or 20 days a a month. I want to to share it around. So the nature of work where we do work I think will change and I think we'll have to be able to cope with that. But allowing our digital persona to morph between private and and public and and, uh, inside the organisation will have to work as well but then the challenge is IP, confidentiality, all those sorts of things. I think we're, we're going to see lots of rules that are going to be broken because the humans will wave the flag and say, no, 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 five days a week, Monday to Friday doesn't suit me. I want to have my own hours and you're going to have to catch up because the best person for this job is someone that isn't prepared to give you five days a week. I think we're going to have to prepare for that. And I'm seeing part of that now. And the reason the works of this world are flourishing is that companies are saying we need to have a very flexible work environment that we can dynamically assign as we need to during the week.
0: Yeah. And I think that brings up a a great point because, you know, one of the things people talk about on this digital disruption, you're either going to disrupt or be disrupted. And, you know, using that example of I'm only going to use the desk for three days, not all five. So is we work the solution. And so people would toss out and I'm I'm oversimplifying, obviously, um, but, you know, I don't want to be Uberized or Airbnbized or I don't want to be WeWorkized, you know, and, uh, you know for me i i i see it as digital transformation but i also really see it as this mental model transformation, right? We used to do work a certain way. We used to go to the office nine to five, five days a week. We used to do that. Now we yeah. have this opportunity to do something at WeWork. And even big corporations, IBM, Salesforce, others are using WeWork in very specific areas where they may not have a footprint presence of a building, right, that that they can have employees go yeah. to. So they want a place that they can have meetings and do things. And so it's sort of the way that it works today. You, you know, it was Starbucks before <laughs> WeWork. Right, right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and so for me, it's this big kind of mental model transformation. And I've had a number of guests on uh, the What's Next podcast talking about this mental mental model transformation, especially in the things that you talk about, right? Because it's it's diversity, uh, both from a you know culture and a uh, gender perspective, and then you have you know big technology disruptions like blockchain and AI and you know, AR AR and virtual reality and those kinds of things, you have the workplace of the future, you have, you know, digital, you have social selling. And to me, that's a lot of personal change, not just technology change. And so what have you seen, you know, people doing to get teams, companies, groups to make that shift mentally in order to absorb all the things we're talking about here? Because this is a lot of change coming at people all at the same time.
1: Oh, I mean, I, I think I'm at one end of the scale. I'm probably more adapt to that change because I've, I did an engineering degree, so I understand the technology. And, and if a new technology is thrown at me like a distributed ledger technology like blockchain or AI, I can take it apart and understand it. I really feel for people that have been programmed to do one type of job or one type of thing and... and like you say, all these things are being thrown at you. But just go back to the WeWork example. I, I'm trying to work out why it's been successful because in London, for example, they are the largest private office tenant in the whole of London. They have more space than anyone but the government. That's huge. They have competitors all around. One of them is called Regis. They're also a global company started so in the UK. I, right? and I've actually got a Regis card, so I spend some of my time at Regis and whenever I have meetings with friends. Um, but if you go to Regis, no disrespect, it's boring. Because it is a desk at an office, and there's no atmosphere, and they 're not selling atmosphere. I think what we work are doing is they 're selling a club culture you 've got a desk to work at we 're also giving you a culture there is a large breakout space there's always someone pitching something there's free beer. Now, it can go the other way. I've actually heard people have said, we can't get any work done at WeWork because it's just too noisy. But I think if you want to break out the team dynamic, um, you sometimes have to to disrupt that. And so what WeWork have done, and even with IBM, there's a whole building in, in New York where it's a WeWork building, but it's been essentially sublet to IBM. If I was an IBMer with a WeWork card, which means I could go to any WeWork in the world, that opens a new set of possibilities because I can then mingle with people that aren't my own tribe, if you like. And so I think, This is an issue because back to confidentiality and IP and all those secrets being stolen, those sorts of things, they have to be handled. But I think... People want to learn from other people. I'll give you an example. So I call myself the practical futurist. The reason being is that when I'm on stage, I don't want to tell people what's going to happen in five or ten years' time because they don't have that long to wait to make business decisions. I want to give them something they can go away with the next day and do. And often I I give them a little nugget, something really easy. Let's assume I'm talking to a, a group of 85 insurance executives from around the world. I said, here's a crazy thing you can do. Spend a day or a week at a WeWork or the equivalent in your country. Why? You'll go there day one dressed to the nines in your business suit and you'll look very out of place and someone's going to come up to you and go, hello, my name's Andrew, what do you do? I work for a large insurance company. Oh, come here, sit down. It's going to take them outside their comfort zone, and they're going to find out if they're there for a couple of days, they're going to overhear lots of different discussions. They're going to loosen up. They're probably dressed down the next day. Um, they will probably find a very different style of working. And I deliberately get these executives that are generally 50 plus and male to do this because they've never experienced it before. And I've had some people come back and say, you know, Andrew, that was a crazy idea, and I did that. And I, I, I can't tell you how thankful I am because I got to see a different side of the way people do work. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that everyone then goes into the WeWork model, but sometimes you've just got to disrupt your own way of thinking to be around other humans, to have that community atmosphere, um, and that's where, you know, the creative juices flow.
0: Yeah, and so I I often say that now uh, that experience is the product, so going back to what you just said. You know, Regis versus we work. And I'm just using that as an example. Yeah. You know, the, to use Clayton Christensen's terms, right. The job is the same. I need a place to go work. There is no office. I'm either going to work at home, work at a coffee shop or work at this shared office, air quotes. And I'm going to do it at either place. What is going to make me choose one over the other? And to your point, right. It was a feeling country club. It's about the experience very different. And so You know, you could argue this up and down with a Blockbuster versus a Netflix or, you know, a Sears versus whomever, you know, the experiential sellers that are out there now growing, you know, the Sephora's of the world, whatever it might be. And so if you're a company today that feels like, look, you know, we are at a crossroad, a tipping point of we're getting beat for the same job just for experience. And so that goes back to that whole it's this mental model disruption. They don't have to do anything. They already have the space. So, do they paint it? Do they change the entryway? Do they change the brand? Do they hire different people? You know what I mean? Like, that's all things that they can fix. Those are internal people process things. They already have the real estate. They don't have to worry about that. It's do they want to kind of give it all, you know, a, a little bit of a of, of an update to compete for potentially this new generation, millennials. But it isn't just millennials. I mean, WeWork is full of, you know, every generation. So it, it's possible, but I, yeah, I still yeah. lean back to the fact that I think this is more mental than technical.
1: Oh, Absolutely, because the technology is enabling us to do things faster, and because that's the case, consumers want answers and, and things done faster, which means we have to be in an environment where we've got the information at our fingertips. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's very easy to say, we'll just put a lick of paint over that, but it doesn't change the culture. I think what we haven't covered here, but but I, I want to get through is it's not always about the technology. I think there is a huge, huge cultural shift needed uh, at all levels of the organisation. I think at the moment you've got the top table, you know, rabbit in the headlight, not sure what to do, we're being disrupted, we can't hire the right people because they don't want to come and join us because they're not sexy enough. You've got the millennials, the, the, the people in their early, um, early parts of their career who don't seem to have a voice. I, I spend half my time when I come in as a consultant basically saying you have two tribes. You have the born digital and you have the going digital. And the two need each other. And some of these disruptive problems you've got, you already have the answers, but you're not allowing the people with the crazy ideas that don't have the, quote, experience to have a voice in the boardroom or at the top table. And and I say that and the light bulbs go off. I'm not sure what actually happens afterwards. Sometimes I never find out. Others, other times I do. But you actually have all the answers in the building. You just need to get them all talking to each other. The hierarchy of command and control, the cadence that we're used to. That just doesn't work anymore because people want to have their ideas heard because they might have the solution that no one's ever thought of. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, you know, I, I'd love to, to let our listeners know how else they can follow the work that you're doing um, because I think it's a great perspective. I mean, you know, there are many people I talk to um, both on this podcast, but just on a daily basis. And I love the mix of practical understanding of having actually done it themselves and then, you know, studying it from the outside, I think it gives a really unique blend. So I've, I've really appreciated uh, your time today and your point of view, Andrew.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for giving me a voice. I, I love talking about this. And if 1% of what I've said makes sense and it can help someone in their organization, then I'm very happy.
0: So how can people uh, how can people follow up with you and find you and, and keep, t- keep in touch with all the things, great content you're putting out?
1: Real simple, andrew.london, no.com. Andrew.London. Think of my name and where I live, Andrew.London. That's the center for everything. I'm also on Twitter at Andrew Grill. But if you go to Andrew.London, uh, all of my thought leadership is there, videos, the whole lot. You can uh, you can spend hours or no hours whatsoever uh, having a look at that.
0: Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. It has been a pleasure, and I look forward to keeping up with all the great work you put out.
1: Thanks, Tiffany. Appreciate the time. Thank you.
0: What a fantastic conversation with Andrew Grill. So much fun to. Get a chance to reconnect with someone I'd known in my past life to talk about how we can really raise our brand awareness around things like social selling, but more importantly, how we really need to keep our eye on the human side, the mental model side of disruption. And what are the things that we can all do as individuals in order to raise our awareness, raise our value to customers, but more importantly, get our thoughts out there so people can rally around them and help us shape what we're thinking about. If you have any plans of trying to increase your footprint online, this is a fantastic podcast for you to share and listen to again. So thank you for spending time with me today on the What's Next podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, share it with your friends, give a rating, download the next episodes, and I'll look forward to having you join me next time. Have a great day.